Hey everyone, welcome back to the NPFCC Messages Podcast. On today's episode, you are going to hear a special message from a special friend of NPFCC's. His name is John Irwin, and John is a pastor. He's pastored churches across Southern California, including here in the Caneo Valley. He's also a teacher, writer, coach, leader, husband, father, and grandfather. He's passionate about helping families become strong families of faith. And his message today will no doubt challenge you to lead your family well. So as always, we hope you enjoy this message. I hear we are live, whether you're watching from Santa Fe, New Mexico, San Diego, San Juan, or from your couch, we're glad you're with us here. But I am so glad to see all of you. You are back for more. I was here last Labor Day when it was 102 degrees. Are we enjoying this weather a little better? Hey, we have survived a lot of firsts. We all survived a hurricane a few weeks ago, huh? How about that? Florida has nothing on us, right? And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, maybe I'm going to become kind of the Labor Day guy, you know? They're gone. The faithful, however, are here with me, right? And so I thought I'd do something fun. I'm starting a four-part series. (laughs) It's going to take you four years to get through it. I'm going to call it Plot Twist, and we're going to look at the life of Joseph. You say, you're kidding. No, I'm not. I'm retired. I have lots of time to make up stuff like this, right? And I'm happy. I am so happy. I'm in my second year of retirement. By the way, this retirement thing, oh yeah, clap, 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 yeah. You know, retirement is really overrated. I really don't think pastors retire. Uh, It's just like catchers go to third base or first base, right? Um, And so uh, I have been busy in retirement and I've lost my mind again. You go, what's up? Next week, I start as the interim teaching pastor at Grace Church of Glendora. So if you have any kids at Azusa Pacific University, join me with about 900 other people and at least 100 Azusa kids who come to worship there. So anybody, this is a crazy, like anybody have a kid at Azusa Pacific? Well, we knew better because you sent your kids to Biola, right? (laughs) Or maybe hope, maybe that would be another choice. So what have I been doing, busy doing? Well, we're going to look at this whole idea of when dad plays favorites. Look at this first screen because I think this describes my favorites here in just a moment. So there are four of my five grandkids and then the dog, and that says, thank you, mom, for our school. My daughter is doing the crazy of all crazy. She started her own academy this year at College Avenue Baptist Church, and um, she's homeschooling. It's a combo where you homeschool and you have a Christian school deal, and so she's the principal two days a week, and she's their teacher the rest of the week, and then when we're down there, I am very good at third grade math, I want to let you know, and um, so we help out with that in our spare time. And uh, this is a picture. I don't really have a favorite, but this is a recent picture with me and my oldest at a soccer tournament. How many of you uh, play soccer still? You're smart. How many of you used to play soccer? Okay, honestly, and I know this is online, how many of you actually really hate soccer? All right, okay, there's three honest people. See, I'm a baseball guy. And if I was playing favorites, I would have had kids who wanted to raise grandkids who played baseball. But no. They play soccer. (laughs) A bunch of kids just chasing a ball, right? 
Now, at their level, it's a club team, so it's much better, all right? And, you know, they're not quite Lionel Messi yet, but, you know, maybe Ronaldo, who knows? Um, so they do that. They play Taekwondo. They, and now here's another one. Grandparents, how many of you have ever endured a dance competition for six-year-olds? Okay, you, there is a special reward in heaven for you. Yes, there's a jewel in your crown for doing that. And um, I am curious, where are the grandparents? You, you are a grandparent. Okay, I never get to do this because I am one now. I want the grandparents to stand. Just stand here. I promise you I won't embarrass you. But I do want the cameras to pan if we can get all of you who are standing. I am so happy to be a part of you. And I want to tell you about an opportunity, which I know Pastor Ken's going to tell you more about, but we're hosting the National Grandparenting Summit over at my former church at Agura Bible in October. I hope you're there because I'll emcee it and we will have a lot of fun. We'll hopefully listen to the messages, but we're going to have a lot of fun as well. You can have a seat. Thanks so much. So when dad plays favorites, when dad plays favorites, it goes like this. You're my favorite son, I said to my son. My son wisely says as a seven-year-old, Dad, I'm your only son. But it's still true, right? And sometimes, whether we admit it or not, we do uh, play favorites. Uh, the, the bottom line is I've been analyzing social media, and um, one of the things I've noticed is the grandparents in this room you, most of you are like, you're okay with Facebook, right? You, you know how to post and maybe see so much. But then if you're a little younger, you, yeah, Facebook's is so like 2000s, right? And so my daughter, Facebook, what? Uh, it's all Instagram. But that is like, if you know, if you're a high school student, like, oh, come on, folks. Uh, then it's TikTok for the, you know, Gen Zers. And I, who knows what's next? But I have decided I am an Instagram, an Instagram, and I'm only on, on Instagram because I want to see pictures of my grandkids. And uh, I was thinking, you know, we had it pretty simple. Uh, we only had two kids. They're two, two, um, two years apart. How many of you had three or more kids? Just raise your hand. All right. How many had four? Four? We have any four there? Four? And uh, anybody had five or more? Five, you, you have five kids. What are their, okay, can we, can we just have a chat? All right. Um, this is why Ken's gone and I'm free range. Here we go. Uh, so five kids, ages. Well, he's had a side, but he'd be 25. Okay. 20. Oh my goodness gracious. That's here. What's your name? Giovanna, five. So my daughter has five. This odd number year, they turn 11, 9, 7, 5, and 2. Boy, boy, girl. Boy, boy, girl, boy, girl. And um, the bottom line is, okay, that's a lot of kids. My son-in-law came from a family of eight. Has nothing to do with the bottom line for this guy, who's a f one of 12, number 11 of 12 is Joseph. So let's look at our notes. As you know, I always like to have notes and um, get those out, get your pens ready to go. 
But this whole idea of playing favorites, sibling rivalry, um, Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob. And I know some of you think you've got a wacky family. The popular term is dysfunctional. Well, clearly we're all dysfunctional at some level. And um, you know the, the beauty of a small group, by the way, just a sidebar. We talk about dysfunctional marriages and families. When you go to a small group and you talk about something during the course of that week in that small group, as you're driving home, tell me that you have not done this, because I know you have. When you got done, you go, honey, we are doing pretty good. <laughs> On that food chain of dysfunction, we're not at the bottom this week, you know? The Jones are at the bottom this week, because you're honest and you tell the truth about one another, right? But this is one messed up family we're going to look at. And in Genesis 37, we see how it all started, right? How it all started. And as we do this study in the life of Joseph, and I don't know if I'll get to do another message, but this is the first one, I want to give you kind of an overview of Joseph's life that sets the stage for, we're only going to look at four verses. And you say, what time are we done? Tomorrow, about 10. Um, but here's the overview of his life, five broad time periods in his life. Verse 37, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. I thought we were going to talk about Joseph. Who's Jacob? Jacob is Joseph's dad, his papa, right? And his name means what? I'm sure Pastor Ken has told you. He is the deceiver. He is literally the Hebrew term, the chiseler. Uh, and he is not a young dude. You think you're feeling old, feeling your age? He's 170 years old. All right, that's, that's ancient by any description, right? And his name literally means, his new name, Israel, literally means God strives. And that's, we won't get into that wrestling match that he had. But there is a competition going on in Jacob's life between four, uh, well, two women in particular. Uh, and they are Leah and Rachel. We'll find out more about that in a bit. But until Joseph's born, Rachel is barren. That's his wife. And uh, that's quite a social stigma and a disgrace to her husband. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because some of you are not parents. You go, why am I here again? One of these family messages. No, this is a Bible message, and it happens to deal with some family themes. But I know there are some of you who are heartbroken because of miscarriages or a death of a child or the end of a marriage. And so kind of painful when you see some snapshots in the life of this crazy family, because you can see some glimpses from your past as well. Others of you, you've come through that tunnel and you're so glad you're on the other side of that. And uh, yet I know that sometimes these themes are a little painful, so I'm, I'm not uh, unaware of that. So what are some of the events in Joseph's life? So if you look at Joseph from the time he's born, here's the kinds of things in that overview that he could see. And by the way, if you see me doing this with my hand, I have a torn rotator cuff that I had surgery, and I can go about this far. So I have to praise God with my hands together. It looks like a dove, but I just can't lift this arm. That explains this. And so Joseph birthed Jacob to get out of Haran. He's been working for 20 years for his father-in-law, Laban, who is no fun guy to work for. We won't get into all the way he tricked him, but that's why he has Leah as a wife and Rachel for a life, wife, and they work 14 years, and you know that drill. Uh, Joseph's name means add to me, which is this idea 
that he gives his dad new energy uh, late in his life. Now, here's what he would have seen. He would have seen his father sneaking away with his, from his grandfather Laban because of all these changing contractual terms on who's married to who and when and what. Then when he's, fi and he's five or six years old, they finally leave Haran and they get out of Dodge, so to speak. He's only five, Joseph is. Now, another big event in his life, imagine when he goes to meet his uncle Esau and, and for the very first time. Now, you have crazy relatives you don't like to see very often, but I'm pretty sure most of them don't come with 400 fighting men to greet you, which means are they coming to greet you or to kill you? That could be pretty traumatic for a young kid growing up. Now, as I pause here for a moment, aren't you feeling just a little bit better about your crazy family? Right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, how about this deal where he noticed his father was up all night and the next day his father never walks normally again. He walks with a limp because of his, his wrestling with an angel. By the way, if I've uh, encouraged you to look at passages I'm not even getting into, you should read the life of Joseph because there's more written about the life of Joseph than all the other patriarchs combined. Then you'll remember that he had uh, several older brothers, um, uh, 10 to be exact. And when Simeon and Levi retaliate in murderous revenge for their sister being defiled, he sees that. And he's 11 years old when he sees what happens when you mess with his sister. Then he watches, well, he doesn't, but his mom dies. Rachel dies giving birth to his younger brother, Benjamin, affectionately known as Benji, just prior to losing his grandpa, Isaac, at his death. So there's, there's all kinds of trauma in this kid's life. And I want to pause here for a moment because some of you say, you don't know the life I've lived. I don't need to know the life you've lived. I just look at this life and I know that God can use your past in a way that is so powerful, so life-changing, that you don't have to be bound to the dysfunctional issues of your past. And I know we have reasons for why we do what we do, but here we see a guy ultimately that overcomes all of that through God's grace. Well, the next section and panorama in his life is the years of tension, and I think that was most of his life. It comes to a fulcrum and when he's 17 in this passage that we'll look at uh, in Genesis 37. We know that Jacob's pretty busy, preoccupied, CEO of a big, sprawling agricultural empire. There's rivalry, there's jealousy, there's competition. He has two wives, two handmaidens, 12 kids, and at least one daughter, maybe more. And there's this infighting and bickering between the stepbrothers. And the one thing the older 10 had in common was what? They do not like this punk kid called Joseph, which we'll find out why. In fact, because of dad's preferential treatment for number 10, they ultimately plot to kill him and they even sell him into slavery. And so Joseph reaps all the consequences of being an inattentive father, an absentee dad of a guy who shows favorites to one and not the others. And he is sold into slavery, Joseph is, at age 17. Now I want to pause here again, because some of you are living in regret to the parenting mistakes that you've made in your life, and you keep beating yourself up for those. 
You know, your adult children have choices. They made choices independent of your choices and you are not responsible for them. You say, yeah, but what about the stupid stuff I did when they're 8, 9, 10, 12, 15? Well, are we not all mess-ups? Don't we all sin? Haven't we all messed up? You say, but you know how bad mine was. You know what? Here's the deal. I'm pastoring a church years ago. My son is now 37. I had to invite him not to live in our home two weeks before high school graduation. So if I ever come back and do Luke 15, we'll talk about the prodigal son. And I can tell you about the hell we lived for through for several years and how hard it was to have my, my son not be a part of our family. Always welcome for dinner, but he made some choices that just didn't follow God's plan. And thankfully, on Memorial Day 2009, he gave his life to Christ. Even though we thought he prayed as a six-year-old in Awana, right? It was many years later in his 20s that we, he really yielded and bowed the knee to Jesus. So parents, grandparents, parents of prodigals, those of you who lived with pain, regret, shame, this isn't the day you get to add, I'm not, I'm not going to pile on. And all I'm saying is, here's one crazy family, and I'm almost positive yours is not quite as crazy as this one, right? So there's hope for all of us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Then the third phase of life, it was really a couple of years, is this phase of temptation. After he was in prison, he's in Potiphar's house. And as we know, uh, Potiphar's wife was a hottie. Uh, I think I can say that publicly. If not, it's live. We're stuck with it. Sorry. Um, and she accused him of sexual misconduct, right? And here's a little key detail that we sometimes miss. If Potiphar had believed his wife that Joseph had done a no-no, what would have happened to Joseph? He would be, yeah, you got it. He would be dead. I'm guessing, and we'll find out in heaven, it's one of the questions we get to ask at Information Central, that he didn't believe her. But to save face, he had to throw him in jail again, right? And next year, we'll talk about that. Um, and he's thrown into prison to save face, but I'm pretty sure this wasn't the first time that his wife had meandered, so to speak. And then we have this years of testing. Some think, Warren Rearsby thinks it's 13 years of this. We know that he's been left in prison for at least two of those years. And there's this uncertain future where he's in prison, he interprets dreams, no, nothing happens, he's still stuck in, in prison, so to speak. And then we have the period of triumph from 30 years old to 110 years old. And that's where we see the bulk of his life as the number two guy in all of Egypt his brother's coming back, the reconciliation, that he's the second most powerful man, he's reconnected with his family, and those crazy dreams that we'll see, you'd see in Genesis 37, actually come true. And his brothers actually do bow down to him. And so let's get into our text today. Let's look at the opposition in verses 2 through 4. And there's a report, because Joseph's going to tattle on his brothers and 
verse 2, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billa and Zilpah, his father's wives, which that's a little bit of a, they're his wives, kind of, they're handmaidens. In other passages, they would have been called maybe concubines, but they are the handmaidens to Leah and Rachel. And Joseph brought a bad report about them, his stepbrothers, to their father. Do we have any 17-year-olds here in the room? I know maybe the high school and junior high are out, right? They're in their own class. Too bad, because I could have used you in my illustration, all right? Um, but how many of you have a 17-year-old? Do they know all at age 17? Do they say they know all? Of course they do. They are unteachable, especially after 16 and they get their driver's license. And you just pray to God that they really know what they're doing and they don't harm themselves. So I think he's a bit immature, quite frankly. Um, I would go as far to say he's young, he's brash, and he's spoiled. You say, oh, you can't talk about our hero Joseph like that. Yes, I can, because the Bible doesn't whitewash the character deficiencies of the people we promote as heroes. And let's be clear, when you do Old Testament exegesis, there's something that's very important. Are we studying these heroes to put them up as, hey, here's a hero to emulate? Is that what we're doing? Uh Uh-uh. What we're doing is Jesus, God, they're the hero of the story. God is always the hero of the story, and he uses very improbable people to accomplish his task. And that should give us great, great sense of relief that you don't have to be perfect to be used by God, because clearly at this point in his life, Joseph is not very perfect. Now, the sons of Bilhah, who are these guys? It's Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. And these guys had always felt like second-class citizens. Okay, another moment of transparency here. Let's just do this. How many of you grew up in a family where you had a stepbrother or sister, or you were the stepbrother or stepsister? Can I just see? Anybody who has their hands up know exactly what I'm talking about, and even the best of blended family situations, there are the haves and the have-nots. And at times, if you are the stepson or the stepsister or the stepwife, quote-unquote, It's a tough pill to swallow. And so we can only speculate what the bad report is. We don't know what he says. He could say they were lazy, they were inattentive, sheep are dying, they're they're skimming off the top and selling some sheep off. Who knows? So what happens? Let's see how Jacob solves the problem. Let's look at the robe and how he shows preferential treatment to Joseph. Now, verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. Remember, he is the son of who? Rachel, his beloved. Benjamin's number two, and Rachel dies while Benjamin's. So he doesn't love Benjamin more. I th- by, by the way, if you're the son who causes the death of your mother in childbirth, I think that's a pretty interesting position to be. Number 12 in the family, but the love of his life dies, quote, giving birth to you. I think it's a little weird. And the Bible doesn't address it until very later. Well, (laughs) four years from now, when we're in our 70s, 
We're going to find out how Benjamin plays out, all right? Have I just kind of invited myself back? I think I kind of just did. Sorry, Ken. Again, live for all to see. Um, so this robe, um, how many of you had a, <laughs> can't believe I'm going to ask you this. How many had a Gucci sweater in the 80s? That multicolored Gucci sweater? Of course not, we'd never admit paying that much for one of them. How many of you just have an ugly Christmas sweater? All right, well, imagine something like that. It's a sign, except it's not an ugly Christmas sweater. Uh, because he's his favorite, Joseph's the firstborn, he's favored. At age 17, he goes from helping with the sheep uh, to being overseer of his stepbrothers, the youngest telling the olders what to do. Do you have kids who say, you're not the boss of me, right? That's what he now becomes the boss. This is incredibly stupid. If Joseph is thinking, he said, dad, no, no, I haven't earned it. No, 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 I don't want it. But he's 17, of course I've earned it. Give me the Porsche too, right? And so Joseph wanted to make, uh, Jacob wanted to make Joseph a ruler before he had really learned how to be a servant. Here's an interesting principle. When you're thrust into leadership when you're younger and you haven't earned it, you've seen how that works in the business world, right? You've been working at your company for 10, 15 years and the boss's son who just gets out of school and so he did go to Stanford. He did get his MBA at Wharton and now he's 25 and he's your boss and he's clueless. That's what it felt like right? This young punk is going to tell them how to take care of sheep when he's been fed with the silver spoon, had every advantage given to him. His hands are not, not rough. They're soft. And that says in verse 4, they hated him. Later on, they say they envied him. Is it hate or envy? It's both. And so this preferential promotion sets up for a catastrophic event. It says, Jacob loved Joseph more. Now, we automatically assume that he hated the rest of his kids. It doesn't say that. It just said he loved them more. But it felt like he didn't love the others. It felt like to them that they got the leftovers of his time. Okay, I'm going to meddle a little more. By the way, you know I go from preaching to when I come over here. That means I'm going to meddle with you a little bit, all right? Because this is my second time with you. We are family. I can say things. I'm Uncle John. I'm also Grandpa. Grandpas say crazy stuff, and then they leave, all right? So is that fair? Okay. Let me meddle with you a bit here as we think about this, this adversarial relationship. Some of you know what it's like to be on the receiving side of preferential treatment because your siblings told you, mom and dad always loved you best, right? And you said, no, 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 that's not true. And they go, oh, yes, it is true. And then they go and recite all the ways you were favored. Have you ever, I'm just curious, if you, because that was told about me by my sister who's eight years older. Young, you know, they thought they would be single child parents. And eight years later, whoops, comes John, right? So my sister said for years, my parents coddled me. I had everything given to me. I wonder if there's anybody besides me who has ever accused of that by their siblings. Would you just raise your hand? Could we start our own support group that say, it is not so, it is not so, right? But it is kind of so. 
My sister got married when I was 12, and so I really was the lonely only, and I did rule the roost, and my dad loved baseball, and I played baseball all the way into college, so life was good, and I admit it. Joseph doesn't quite understand all that, but what he does see is the consequences of dad doing those things and this adversarial relationship with older brothers that many of them are 10, 12, 15 years older than he is. And so he grows up with this negative peer pressure. His stepbrothers hate him. He's spoiled by dad. There's sibling rivalry. And we say, well, we would never do that. Oh, yeah? Have you ever caught yourself saying this and then you want to snatch it back when you say to your kids, why can't you be more like, and you name another kid? <laughs> Screeching halt, right? Because you said it, you didn't really mean it, but that cuts, and it cuts deeply. The way God made you is that your kids are very different. If you have three or more kids, are any of them cookie cutters? Maybe they're triplets than they would be physically, maybe. But they're so different, right? My daughter, firstborn, by the book, was not a trouble in high school, literally. You know, I don't know what you think about spanking, but at appropriate time in a certain age, it's all right, a little pat on the popo, and it gets their attention, right? Literally. I maybe had to spank her two times in her entire life. You know what worked for her? Let's see. Let's pick you because you have five kids. I'd look at you if you were my daughter and I'd say, what's your name again? Giovanna. Gio I said I'm going to call you Katie. You know, I'm going to call you Katie because you're going to play my daughter. All right, Katie. Daddy and mommy are very disappointed with your behavior. Yes! She, she bows her head. She, she starts crying uncontrollably. I'm so sorry, Daddy. I won't do it again. So then we have a kid, John Daniel, two years later. Oh, yea, thus verily. He does not respond to John Daniel. I'm so disappointed in your behavior. Well, Dad, you better learn to deal with it. <laughs> Ay, 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 ay. And so the Board of Education met the seat of his understanding. All right, John, grab your ankles. Does he bend over and grab his ankles? Oh, no, he goes like this and grabs his ankles like this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I get it. Our kids are very different. And even how you dealt with them, the firstborn, right? When you have the firstborn, ladies, you wear your maternity clothes. As soon as your OBGYN confirms you're pregnant, the second baby, you wear your regular clothes for as long as possible. Forgive me for saying this. The third baby, your maternity clothes are your regular clothes. All right. Okay, you've, you have only encouraged me. Let's do one, one or two more. Can we? All right. Uh, how about this one? Uh, Worries. At the first sign of distress, a whimper, a frown, you pick up the baby. The second baby, you pick up the baby when she wails or he wails and threatens to wake up your firstborn. Third baby, you teach the three-year-old how to rewind the mechanical swing, right? <laughs> you kind of loosen up. How about this one? We'll do the last one more. Going out. Firstborn, the first time you leave your baby with a sitter, you call home five times. 
Second baby, just before you walk out of the door, you remember to leave a number where you could be reached. Third baby, you leave instructions for the sitter under no circumstances do you call me only if you see blood and you're on the way to the hospital. All right? So we lighten up usually as, as parents, don't we, along the way. So what does this, this comparison do? When kids see us loving our, our kids differently, this comparison robs them of their security. Here's what I've learned. One's going to be athletic, one's going to be academic. One's going to be outgoing, one's going to be introvert. One will be stylish, and the other is, let's say, they jump off of the bed, whatever they land on, that's what they wear. You know, it's, they're going to be very different. And the more you have, the more different they are. I got a grandson who's an athlete. I got number two that, you know, he's not very athletic and he can't keep his hands off of you. So he's in jujitsu. He's excelling because his hands are used to win. And I'm like, we're teaching this kid how to do an arm bar and he'll be a cage wrestler as he gets older. I don't know about this. The third one's a little girl. She's a dancer. Thus I have endured hours of waiting for two performance. Why can't they have performance one at 11 a.m. and performance number two at 11.20 a.m.? Why does that be 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.? Because we're supporting local businesses for lunches all over Southern California. And it goes on and on. Number four is not athletic all. He's five years old. But you know what? You know how I have to be careful not to make him my favorite? He, by the way, we have this, this family compound thing going on in San Diego where we live in a girl, but we, we were able to, God blessed us with an inheritance. We we're able to buy a property with our kids. They live in the big house where all the messes are made. We have a smaller house on the same property, but not attached. And uh, so when we're tired, we can go sleep. But, and they can't arrive before 7 a.m. And I'm saying this for all the grandparents because we'll talk more about this in a few weeks at the Grandparenting Summit. Um, they, they show up. And usually they come hungry, right? So Grammy is very popular. There's two that get of those five up earlier than any others. Number four, or number three and number four, girl boy. Sayla the dancer has tea with Grammy, but Oaks comes to sit in my lap because he's still five and grandpa's cool and I can read and he can't quite read. And what does he want to read? You're going you're gonna to love this. I'm reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with him. And he curls up in my lap about 7.15 in the morning and we read several chapters. And then he's hungry too and then we're done with that. Let's feed me. So we've learned with grandkids, it's true with teenagers as well. If you feed them, they will come, right? <laughs> and those times of reading with him is one of the reasons why I've decided to become an intentional Christian grandparent. Now, it kind of blows it because he's seen all the Chronicles of Narnia movie and movies. And so we're in the Lion, Rich, and the Wardrobe, and he's now telling me what happens in the next chapter before it happens. He can't read, but he tells me what's happening. Very special. And so this robe, and I'm tired, by the way, I'm not talking about intentional moments with your kids or grandkids. What I'm saying is make sure that all of them feel your love and not just some of them feel your love. And so the robe's illustrative of Jacob's love, is a sign of nobility, he's promoted. This long flowing sleeves means he's not a laborer. It's like going to the worksite in a tux, so to speak. 
So there's this resentment. His brothers hate him, verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So it's not rocket science to see what the brothers are doing, what dad hasn't done. They see this punk brother as just a pain, and, and so they see him as a threat to their future. And nobody talks about it. He's a threat to their inheritance. Because the firstborn is supposed to get two-thirds of the estate. Now, there's 12 kids. That's slim pickings for the next 11. But if you're your favorite, can you see that they're worried? Maybe Jacob's going to say Joseph gets the, the lion's share of the inheritance. Let me meddle one more time. Just one more. Money distribution, grandparents, to your kids and grandkids may cause you more headaches than it ever did in raising your own kids. There are three philosophies. Spend it while you're alive and leave them nothing. Nah, that's not, maybe not. Spend some of it, leave it some to them. Give to the kingdom. Help your grandkids go to college. I don't know what you're going to do, but I know how money, and I think an underlying issue here is an inheritance issue that nobody wanted to address and what they were fearful of. So the bottom line is they hate him. They speak with malice. They're not civil. And these childhood wounds that Joseph experienced are the same childhood wounds some of you experienced. Some of you grew up in a neglective, abusive home. And the fact you're sitting in a church today, if we could sit down, if we sat down in our little living room back here, I bet you we'd hear so many interesting stories how God took you from being bitter and resentful to being an overcomer and a redeemed child of the King. Because you can dwell in the past and what's been done to you, or you can dwell in the future about what God's going to do and continue to do. And even when you don't see the results now for what you've been praying for for years, God is still faithful. If he's not still faithful, what are we sitting here for? Why are we here? Because we cling to a promise that we yet, we do not yet have. You cling to a promise, Lord willing, that you'll see a child in heaven. If you've lost a kid, that you hope you will see that child in heaven, right? And so, let me suggest the ABCDs of what dysfunctional families do not handle very well. And you'll see it throughout all of Joseph's life, but these things didn't handle well by Jacob. And, and maybe you can write, it's easy to write. Anger, bitterness, conflict, and decision-making. Anger, bitterness, conflict, and decision-making was not handled well. And I bet you if you go back in your life, you can see where your parents messed up. I go back in my life, I can tell you right now, the one that I wish I could erase from more and say, I wish I had never disciplined my kids in what? Anger, yeah. I'm a fiery guy. I'm emotional guy. I'm, I'm passionate, right? By the way, my wife likes to sugarcoat it. She says, you're not angry, you're just passionate. I like that, babe. You see the best, the cup is half full. I haven't struggled a lot with bitterness, but oh man, conflict. You can't be a pastor without going through conflict with people. Even when I didn't want to be in conflict. You know what my, least, my last conflict was? I'm retired. I'll get you. I'm retired. Now I'm an elder at Agora Bible Fellowship, and I get someone talking to me that after the Dodgers did a very stupid thing with the nuns of perpetual indulgence, how am I supporting the Dodgers? 
And I forgot about it. I, didn't, I hadn't gone to any games, but I wish I could have supported Clayton Kershaw and the Christians at the faith day. But I, I wasn't there. But months later, I wore a Hawaiian shirt that is Dodger themed. I got a letter about that, but my insensitivity about supporting the Dodgers. Now, this isn't about supporting the Dodgers, but when, my point is this, when, when hurt people are in your congregation, hurt people hurt people. And there's reasons for they, that was a trigger for them. And so they didn't watch the sermon online. Now, okay, I can see that, but I didn't want that conflict. I didn't even know I was causing conflict. And one of the hardest things, and this is a way we can support all your pastors here, many, many times a pastor in a church doesn't even know he stepped on your emotional landmine. You know what I'm saying? He didn't know it was a, a trigger for you. He stepped on it. It blew up. You're mad at him. And he goes, what? What did I do? And then you tell him, he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I had no idea. So when you're tempted to be mad at someone, maybe the best way to treat it is say, maybe they are unaware that they stepped on my landmine, it's my trigger, and maybe it's my problem, instead of lashing out at them and saying, this is why I left the church, or this is why I don't want to hang out with you. Now, I realize that's kind of like, only uncles can say that. Daddy Ken will be back next week and smooth it over for us and we'll be good. But I think sometimes... We just are so ready to be angry at someone because it's about our own hurt that's coming out. Okay, enough of that. So what should we avoid? I wish I could give you a positive stuff, but there's some stuff Jacob just messed up. Number one, avoid passive parenting and fathering and grandparenting and mothering. So I listed, look at all the things in your bulletin there. I won't go over them all, but I listed, look at all the ways he was a passive father. And it caused then this cluelessness, this contempt, sarcasm, jealousy, conspiracy, abuse, callousness, collusion, cover-up. All kinds. It's like a cascading set of dominoes that, that flow through this family because it starts with passive, passivity and favoritism. Ouch. Number two. Attempt to trying to be perfectly fair. You have your kids ever told you or that's not fair. <laughs> and then you wisely say, well, <clears throat> life isn't fair, my dear one. Yeah, but you're my dad. It's worse, by the way, as grandparents, right? I'm sorry, I'm holding. <laughs> by the way, at least I have a scapegoat now. That's my daughter. I'm sorry, I cannot give you Coca-Cola with real sugar. Your mom says you'll be hyper and stay up all night, but you can have water. <laughs> I'll give you more of my French fries. Um, and so life isn't fair. It, and life is going to treat your kids and grandkids unfairly. Remember when my son didn't make a travel basketball team? And he thought there was collusion because all these coaches, all their kids made the team and he didn't. He was an unknown new kid to Minnesota. So we don't treat the kids the same because they're not the same. Each child is unique, right? Train up a child according to his bent, Proverbs 22.6. You may not treat them equally, but you will treat them uniquely. So the key phrase is not, not equally, but uniquely. Thirdly, Let's not play favorites. We've seen how that works out, right? 
Don't compare kids with each other. We know what that. So I see this with my kids. I saw it with grandkids. I saw it for years as a family pastor, a youth pastor. Three things people want in their life. Even you want these things in your life. You want affection. You want to know, do you love me? Your kids just want to know, your, do you love me? It's easier being a grandkid. It says, I hug my grand. I love you, and I don't care if you mess up because I'm going to let your parents deal with it. I'm not getting in the middle of that discipline, right? Talk about being a Disneyland dad. I'm the grandpa dad. Let me just love you, hug you, give you sugar, and send you back. All right. I don't do that. Um, I do love them. I just don't send them back with sugar. Um, so the, the thing is, kids are asking, do, do you love me? What did I do wrong? All that, when they don't feel that love. Number two, they want attention. Not just love me. Am I important? Look at me. Look at me. Love me. Look at me. And these half-brothers must have, did I not measure up? Why did Joseph get everything and I got nothing? I got the leftovers. Be very careful about complimenting your kids in front of other kids. You know where I've learned that? With my grandkids. If I'm going to compliment one, I better have four more lined up, one for each other one. And I try to do that privately, and I whisper in their ear. You know the number one thing that I whisper in my grandkids' ear, and it worked with my kids? I hold them tight. I put my, and they hate this. It tickles their little necks. But I love it because they squirm and say stop, but they really mean, like, do it some more. Um, by the way, I know I'm sappy, but I'm a grandparent, and there are grandparents who go, uh, I, I wish I could have that relationship with my kids. Some of you are estranged with your grandkids. We're going to talk about that at that summit, long-distance grandparenting. And I say in their ear, I say, Papa loves you. I am so proud of you. And I just give them a big squeeze. I don't even say why I love them or I'm proud. I just tell them. And I say it over and over again. And every time it's more like, oh, stop it some more, stop it some more, right? That doesn't ever get old. That never gets old with your kid. And by the way, it still works with a 39-year-old daughter. <laughs> if you believe the lie that your adult children don't need to be loved and hugged and squeezed and told that you love them, that you're proud of them. You, you've been reading the wrong book, I can just tell you. Because your adult kids still make their mistakes and they beat themselves up because now they're parents and now they're going, oh, maybe dad wasn't so crazy after all, right? And so when you reaffirm them, even in their adult mistakes, it makes it all better. It doesn't solve it. it, doesn't solve the problem, but there's a sense of, and where did we learn that principle? When Jesus is being baptized, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. That's where we learn this principle. And then um, I always try to give them, I appreciate this about you, a character quality. And then thirdly, everybody wants acceptance. Am I worthy? Love me, look at me, listen to me. Do I really matter? Does my opinion matter? And this performance-based acceptance is, is dangerous. Uh-uh. Like, affirm their character, not just their conduct. That is so important. It's easy to please uh, say nice things about kids who do right stuff. 
But your kids don't always do right stuff and your grandkids don't always do the right stuff. And I know I'm way over time and I'm sorry for those of you watching in Beijing. It's probably three in the morning. We're, we're, we're going to land the plane, all right? So over the years, I was asked, well, what should a parent do? What should a grandparent do? And I did a ton of family counseling in 45 years of ministry, ton of marriage counseling, family counseling, pastoral counseling. And I compiled a list. I spoke at several high school camps over the years, and I would pull some high school kids aside and I'd say, what do you, I mean, if I could just give a message to your parents, what is it that you really want from them? And I have compiled my top 10 of things that were told to me by, by kids, what they wanted. And since it's not on here and it's going to be on your screen, I've been told that this list is on your website and you can download it. So don't try to write all these down or I'll just give you my notes. All right. So don't try to write all this down. You can get this. Listen. They just want to be listened to without being judged. They want us to do the right thing, not just talk about the right things. They would like us to earn their respect, not demand it. By the way, we could demand it. We have the role to demand it, but it's easier with honey than vinegar. When you're demanding respect, we've lost the battle already, right? Love them in spite of, not because of. And that's hard, especially when they mess up. Give them their time, not just their treasures. Your kids need your time. They don't need your money. They want your money. They want to spend your money and they will spend it. Let's be clear, but they need your time more. Live with convictions, not with compulsions. I could preach a whole sermon on how our compulsive behavior has affected the family today. Admit when you are wrong and don't make excuses. Number one thing that I worked on as a parent, personally, because I messed up a bunch over years. Hear the whole story without jumping to conclusions. <laughs> Do you overreact real quick and you're ready to just... Just give it. Don't strangle them in the first three sentences. There's no dying in the first three minutes of talking. You know, just, just listen out. Hear them out. Begin with requests and don't resort to threats. And the most important one, be more concerned about their direction than their perfection. Because isn't that what this is all about as we take communion today? Thank goodness we have a heavenly father that we don't have to be perfect. His death on the cross paid for the penalty of what we call sin. And so when we celebrate communion, we're celebrating the fact that we are forgiven, that Christ died on the cross. And those of you who have placed your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, right? Alone, nothing else you know that you'll see him in eternity. And so in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. as they are sitting there at that table, that communion table. I want to clarify something. Heaven is a free gift. Grace is free. But make no mistake about it, though what he offers us is free, 
It didn't come cheaply, did it? He paid for our freedom with his life. And so in the same way, he took the cup after supper. And he said, take it with me. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And this blood doesn't forgive you. It doesn't make you right with God. This juice, this symbolic taking of this juice is a reminder that Christ died. And though he offers the free gift of eternal life, it didn't come cheaply. Do this in remembrance of him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. And as we close in worship, I know there are parents out here, there are grandparents who live with a little guilt. And they're wondering, do I ever, can I do over? Can, can, can I ever feel like I just didn't mess it up for all of eternity? And I want to tell you today, God's example of all the cross and forgiveness is the same thing I want to talk about to you as we wrap up. Maybe you feel like I did some colossal stupid stuff in my younger years. And I'm paying, my family's paying the consequences for my stupidity, my choices, my sin, etc. You're the people I want to talk to first. Friends, you are forgiven. You don't have to carry that bag of shame and guilt and regret because you have a heavenly father who loves you so much. He said, I'm paying for all of that stuff. And it's his grace that washes over your life of regret and mistakes. He says, it's okay. It's forgiven. Can you trust him for that? Can you let go of that? Imagine what Jacob had to do at the end of his life, looking back at the mistakes he made. And I'm not going to make you come forward. You don't have to kneel. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm just saying, I see you. I hear you. But that's not what's important. God sees you. God hears you. Amen. And so, Heavenly Father, we lift you up. We worship your name. We're grateful for our salvation. We're so thankful that you're the hero of the story, not Joseph. And our failures aren't embedded in history for us to feel regret and angst about. Lord, thank you for that forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the NPFCC Messages podcast. If you'd like to support the work of our church, head to npfcc.org give to make a one-time or reoccurring gift. For more information about us, you can always check out our website at npfcc.org. Again, that's npfcc.org.